Hi there, Glocal Citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I'm your host, Florence Adu, and I'm happy to be talking with a very dynamic leader that I've known for many years. We met years and years ago based on our mutual interest in educating children. So I'm so happy to host her today on the podcast. She is the co-founder and CEO of Ubongo, a Pan-African social enterprise that creates education or edutainment for kids in Africa. Over 24 million kids across the continent learn with Ubongo's educational cartoons, radio, and mobile programs in nine languages. Before co-founding Ubongo, she was a media producer who created content for the BBC, The Guardian, online learning platforms, museums, and award-winning documentaries. She was part of the team who designed and launched Fuse School and has also contributed to numerous e-learning initiatives across Africa. Nisha Ligon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Florence. It's great to be here. Great, great, great. So um, let's get started with where you're from, where are you local, and what is your craft? Yeah, so where I'm from, I am half Thai, half American, born in Bangkok. And I would say that's the place that's kind of most consistently been home throughout my life. I've always kind of gone back to Bangkok, but never really lived there full time. So grew up going to school mostly in Richmond, Virginia, and then kind of studies and moving. I've lived in the U.S., UK, and then also studied some and lived in Tanzania and moved back there in uh, about eight years ago. So for the past eight years, I have been local to Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. Okay. All right. All right. And what would you describe as your craft? Yeah. So my craft, I would say, is making media of all sorts and specifically kind of children's and educational media and storytelling and finding ways to create stories and often co-create stories with kids or with storytellers or with teachers that can communicate either an educational outcome or a kind of social and emotional lesson or learning through character and narrative and a lot of music too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So how did you find yourself in that space? You mentioned traveling quite a bit and schooling both internationally in the U.S. as well as abroad. So how did you find yourself in the media space? Yeah, so I've always been kind of just a a storyteller and a creator my whole life. I loved writing stories as a kid. You know, we had our family camcorder and I just would always be making movies. And if there was ever a chance for a school project, I would always turn it into a video or create a song or always just really liked creating various kinds of media content. Mm -hmm. And I actually, I was trying to think back to when did I really start? Even my mom and I, I remember when I was a kid, we kind of launched a little, tiny little venture. We lived in horse country in rural Virginia, where on the weekends we would go to, we'd be at these horse shows and take videos. I think we called it pony pics, people riding and kind of, they could order a video or still images that we would capture from there and kind of make these horseback riding videos. 
where we could capture people's writing and just continued to explore that. In college, I actually, I majored in ecology and evolutionary biology. So you said ecology and evolutionary evolutionary biology. biology. Yeah. So science has always been a big interest for me too. And I had these kind of dual things of really liking filmmaking and media production and then science. And Mm -hmm. the science seemed a little more practical. So that's what I studied, but also did tons of coursework in filmmaking, interactive media production, and just kind of explored what I could there and got the opportunity to work with a really amazing documentary filmmaker named Laura Poitras, who she's produced lots of great films, including the Edward Snowden documentary. And she really kind of encouraged me to say, you know, you, the technical skills are so easy these days. It's, uh, you know, as long as you have a computer and a camera and you can make something, just go and create something don't spend the money on film school. You use that same Mm. money to just go out and make films. And I think Mm. people like her really kind of gave me the confidence, encouraged me to just kind of go out there and start, start creating. And so that's what I did after I graduated from college. I went back to Tanzania where I'd studied abroad and managed to get some small grants to create a documentary film there. And then... Uh, what was I think the documentary? Of, it's called Twiga Stars Tanzania Soccer Sisters. So, um, ah, I, nice. you know, they kind of say create what you know. And I'm a lifelong soccer player, mm-hmm. footballer who played a lot in Tanzania. And I think I was always aware of not wanting to just be creating documentary films kind of about the other. You know, you have to it's mm-hmm. this common thing where, you know, you have someone kind of fly in and make a documentary about an issue who's from the outside to kind of inform the rest of the world. And I think for me, this great in and, and connection to women in Tanzania who are maybe incredibly different from me in background, but we had this shared connection of, of playing soccer. And it, it was a great opportunity to kind of explore various different issues that people would be facing, whether it's around education or gender equity, but through this lens of women's soccer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I created that film, took it to film festivals. But I think what it really reinforced for me, again, going to all these film festivals, say in amazing places like Vale and Deer Valley in the US, is that you're, I started to question whether it was really having an impact on the issues that it you know, was mentioning and addressing, or whether it was kind of taking something from Africa and just showing it to a Western audience. And that is building some bridges. What what actual impact is it going to have? So that led me to shift my focus a little bit more to asking, how can I use these skills to work together with people and with communities to directly create content for the community and have a direct impact there? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what led me more towards educational media production and using the skills rather than saying, okay, let's talk about the problems of education in Africa and show it to a Western audience. Why not um, try and figure out how we can leverage the media and the technology to address some of these issues on the ground and do that in a very local way that's grounded in local stories and local production. Okay. Okay. Okay, interesting. So why the where? Why Tanzania? Why Tanzania? The honest answer was convenience at the beginning. I was looking to do a study abroad when I was an undergrad in the U.S. And I kind of asked, what, what's the most useful language to learn in Africa? Seems like Swahili has a lot of speakers. There was a pre-approved program at the University of Dar es Salaam. So I said, great, it's approved. I'm going to go there. Um, okay. So I did. I went and I studied two semesters in Dar es Salaam 
really kind of built a network of people there. And then many years later, when I was looking to kind of transition into educational media and maybe start something up to do that, I looked, you know, there's a lot happening in Nairobi. And so it's like, oh, maybe I should yeah. be going Nairobi for this. Um, and I did some just kind of scouting trips to go see what was happening on the ground. And um, as part of that, went back to Dar es Salaam and mm-hmm. was just talking to people wherever I could about these different ideas I had and what I was exploring. And it was there that I really connected with like-minded people who were trying to do similar things, but from a maybe a different starting point. So a software developer who was creating SMS um, services and wanted to use them for education and an animator who was really trying to do something for kids, but didn't have, you know, the partners to do the storytelling and the educational bit. So it was really that we found each other in Dar es Salaam. Um, my co-founders are Tanzanian. And mm-hmm. so that's where we started and then grew from there. Mm, interesting, interesting. Tell us a little bit more about that return, because a lot of folks kind of figure out, okay, I think I want to go somewhere. And you had a little bit of an in because you created a network by studying abroad. But coming back after having a career outside, what was that return like in terms of, you know, identifying what city, where, how you're going to, you know, just figure out the living of it all and um, make, create a home? Yeah, So I was actually, I kind of glossed over this, I guess, but but after I did a master's in science media production in London, after Mm -hmm. I'd lived in Tanzania for a bit, I decided, you know, I needed more learning to develop these skills and then started working in the UK. And so I was actually, I got brought into a social enterprise where we were creating educational content, both for corporate learning and then also um, trying to launch a global learning platform which was, you know, we were building a great product. I was learning to do so many things because all of a sudden, you know, I went from being someone who just produced stuff myself to having to build and manage a team, Mm -hmm. put in place processes and systems. So I was learning a ton through that. But then at the same time, I felt that what we were trying to do was amazing for, say, kids in the UK or the US who wouldn't have access to quality-free resources, video-based learning, um, online learning platforms, but that it just was not the right technology to be using for Africa. So this was 2011, Mm -hmm. 2012. um, And then, you know, it didn't matter how good what we created was, kids weren't going to be able to access it on the internet and stream video. Mm -hmm. And you know, within the organization, people had really wanted to focus on Africa. And that was part of why they brought me in. So I really, I was never someone who thought I was going to start an organization, but it kind of happened out of necessity after a while of, you know, saying, well, if we want to do this for Africa, we should be using radio and TV because it reaches more people than online and starting to think, hey, I know a way that this should be done for this context where I, though I'm not from there, I've lived there for a long time and also coming from Thailand have, you know, there's, there's a lot of similarities there. At some point, it's like, well, if you think you know what needs to be done, why don't you just go and do it? And that was mm-hmm. kind of the question that I kept having. And luckily, I have very supportive parents who are not very risk averse. And my dad was kind of asking the same question of like, well, if you think what you need to do is this, why, like, why aren't you doing it? Just go do it. So yeah, I went, you know, I kind of took some leave, did some scouting trips to Nairobi, to Dar, to kind of connect with people, figure things out. The nice thing about being able to work, also do some freelance work on the side is you have a little bit of 
bit more confidence to do that. So I went and covered a startup tech event for the BBC, which was like oh. great because the BBC were getting me in there and I could cover it. But then at the same time, I was learning about all of these organizations and how they do it, it to kind of think about for myself, hey, is this something that I could actually do? So I kind of use those opportunities of creating some freelance content for other partners to mm. go and scope out what I to learn about those things to see is this something I could do myself. Um, mm-hmm. And in DAR, as I mentioned, I met some great people who were thinking similarly. And I went back to my job in the UK. Then they were like, hey, we're, you know, this was a great idea. We're doing our part. Are you ready to come back and do yours? So that was like what made it real. It's like, okay, I need to quit my job, hand things over and move to Tanzania. And so, Mm. um, yeah, it's really nice having other people in that with you who are, so there were people in Tanzania kind of saying, hey, we want to do this together. Are you going to come and do it? And so it wasn't as lonely as just say, kind of coming Mm. myself. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, when I moved back to DAR, I did continue to do quite a bit of freelance work, managed to do some get some contracts to do training around e-learning for other organizations. And again, those were ways to kind of hone those skills for me and still know that I had kind of a job creating other things while starting to work on what we were doing with Ubongo, with the idea really being creating localized edutainment for the technologies that people already have. So radio, TV, and mobile phone. And so we were prototyping these ideas with Ubongo and finally got to something where it was like, wow, this is it. It was really connecting with kids. And that's when I actually went and registered the organization and created it. So it was a very organic process and kind of starting to create things together, testing it out while doing this other kind of freelance work. And then getting to a point where it's like, this is for real. We got to do this and then going Mm -hmm. full time into it. Mm-hmm. I like that approach of the collaboration until you knew that you had something and then you said, okay, it's time that we formalize it and really put it together, particularly in the creative industries. Because I find that, you know, a lot of people, particularly in this part of the world, I want to say West Africa, there's always the rush to let's get a business started. Let's run an office space. And then you don't have anything. So you put a lot of resources into these, you know, structures, but you don't have the thing that is what you are coming together to do. So so kudos to you on that. I think that that is probably the best, one of the, or a great way to start to uh, to seed the the tree that is now, you know, blooming and blossoming. So tell us a little bit more about how you were able to, because um, I know that you did a Kickstarter. And so tell us about that experience, because I think people have varied experiences and expectations of Kickstarter. So tell us how you went about putting that together, because I know that was part of your early evolution. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So we actually, we did Kickstarter once we had already launched. So we did it. It wasn't to create mm-hmm. our initial content. So we mm-hmm. actually got, so as I mentioned at the beginning, like we just didn't have any infrastructure needs. We, we were working on our laptops. Mm-hmm. out of a free co-working space that was like kind enough, you know, this incubator to kind of host us back and forth between there and my apartment and just kind of putting things together until we felt we'd gotten to a show. And I think we had a pilot episode, which, you know, we remade a good three or four times until we actually figured out what this was going to be. And when I say remade, like completely remade, I mean, the first thing and what we finally had, we changed the age group 
the mm-hmm. name, the format, mm-hmm. all of that through this kind of process of just testing things out and prototyping and seeing what would work. And because we were lucky enough that amongst us, we were five of us starting it, we had all the skills needed. We didn't have to like hire anyone to come in and Mm -hmm. do anything. We were just, you know, I was recording all the audio, doing the writing and editing. We had an animator who, I mean, he literally animated the whole thing himself. And so we were able to get a pilot done. And off of that pilot, what we actually were able to do was get a sponsor locally in Tanzania. So we were really lucky. We got a bank on board who wanted Mm -hmm. to promote financial literacy. We were doing a math show at the time, so it fit really well. So we actually got funding locally um, Mm -hmm. to be able to produce 13 episodes of that show Mm. in Kiswahili locally in Tanzania. So that was actually our our first funding, and that allowed us to get an office, start hiring a team, and build out a little bit more of that infrastructure that was needed Mm -hmm together a pipeline. So where then Kickstarter came in, so we'd gotten the local funding and kind of bootstrap. And then we had a season in Kiswahili finished. And already we're getting, you know, it was really one of the first locally produced cartoons in Africa that was fully done locally. And we were already getting a lot of interest from other places. So we knew that in order to test this and scale it and see if it would work elsewhere, we needed to get an English version out. And then from Mm -hmm. there, we go into other languages. So we very specifically did a Kickstarter to take our first season of Ubongo Kids from Kiswahili into English. So the nice thing about that is we had a bit of an established fan base and it was a smaller ask than the right, amount the of full money. Season. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A lot, but to take a season that's made and get it into another language and do some adaptation. You know, we did have to change a lot of animation and stuff, but it was still, I think it was 40 something thousand dollars we were trying to raise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we did that. What I will say is that it ended up being about our network. Mm -hmm. Um, The people who donated were like, people who went to high school with me were like, oh, this is cool. I'll give $25. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it was less actually, we struggled to raise from the local audience that we had developed just because, I mean, people don't have credit cards and if they want to give money, it's really hard. They don't maybe understand Kickstarter as well, but through kind of family and friends and a lot of just asking and reminding and sharing on social media, we were able to raise Mm -hmm. that that money Mm -hmm. on Kickstarter. But it wasn't easy. And I think having the product to already show for it, it was a little bit more of a sure thing than saying, hey, we've got an idea for a TV show. Let's use Kickstarter to try and get it launched. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. About how long was that? About three months of the campaign? Gosh, it's been a long time now. I think it was longer Mm -hmm. than three months. It took us a while to raise the money. And what we've always done, which is maybe not a great business strategy, but has always worked out for us is like, when we decide we're going to do something, we just start doing it. And then we're like, mm-hmm. scraping together the money as we go, which okay. is, you know, not always advisable, but it just makes you get it done, right? Like, sure. as soon as we knew we were raising some, we started getting the content in English, we started doing the recording. And then we just kind of kept going with the fundraising. And that's an approach okay. we've often taken, you know, we launch our seasons usually when we're halfway through production Mm. and it just means that we better keep you know we got to finish that season now we have a schedule we got to stay on the schedule and it's going to force us to get it done and if we need to bring in more funding we're we're going out and finding that funding so it's a bit of an exhausting way to do it but it's also effective in that you're giving yourself these 
deadlines which can't move. And so you just you find just keep going. going. Right, 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 right. Okay, interesting. So you spoke about Kiswahili as the language, um, the initial language and the, the major language. I want to ask you about global speak, and then I want to ask you a little bit more about adapting the content to more languages than just English. So tell us, you know, you, you've lived now in Tanzania for about eight years. I think you're probably fluent in Swahili, at Kiswahili. So Tell us some local speak that you hear, something that's meaningful in your experience, your daily life there in Tanzania. Yeah. So, gosh, local speak. So I'll give you some Bongo speak. So we, okay. we started as a Kiswahili organization, and then now we're like Kiswanglish, and we're trying to like move more over to English because we hire like people that. from across the continent who now like the Nigerians and yeah. people from Cote d'Ivoire don't, don't understand Kiswahili. So we've kind of almost created our own vocabulary around some things and um, our own speak that other people mm-hmm. kind of start to pick up on, even, even if they're not Kiswahili speakers. Um, so one word that we start, it's almost like grown in its significance that we use a lot is Utu, which Utu. in Kiswahili is shared humanity. Mm. So it's an equivalent. I think a lot of African languages have an equivalent. So Ubuntu in South Africa, it's really kind of the same concept mm-hmm. and same meaning. Mm-hmm. And for us, it started to just feel like Utu embodied so much of what we were trying to teach and achieve. You know, it's not so much about the math or the science that we're teaching, but how is it? I think in South Africa, they design Ubuntu as I am because we are. And that Mm -hmm. just really summed up the way that we wanted to work as an organization and how we wanted to teach kids, whether, you know, they're learning about the environment or about diversity or, you know, some specific thing that they're learning for school. How does this fit into the context of their community and their friendships and, and all of that? So we use Utu a lot and we've almost kind of turned it into a verb in English. So like, how would you utu that as an adjective, that's very utu of you. And it, oh, it pops okay. out even in our scripts too. So it's quite interesting how that's happened, but it's such a local concept, right? Even in mm-hmm. Tanzania, like everyone will have heard the word utu, yet a lot of kids don't actually know what it means. It's just got this sense of kind of like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what we, it's been doing is we kind of grab it when we need to define a nebulous concept, but that it talks about connection and coming together. And I think has been a bit of a grounding concept for us there. And now our new season of Ubongo Kids we've just launched is themed around Utu and it's Ubongo Kids Utu and kind of taking that concept and hopefully teaching it beyond East Africa too. Nice. Nice. I like that, Utu. <laughs> and, and creating a verb around it. That's nice. So um, tell us more about expanding into other languages. So so how are you, um, we work together bringing Ubongo to Ghana. So that was a lovely experience. And now it's, on, I think, every Saturdays and then once during the week. And then it's it's like Ubongo hour. So it's Akili and me and Ubongo, which is wonderful. And so how did you further expand? How, you know, what was that process? How, what's the kind of the ins and outs of being able to, I guess, want to um, become a syndicated children's show across Africa? Yeah, there's no one model. It's been kind of figuring (laughs) it out as we go and different in every place. But what I have to say is that like, 
Florence, you and Leap Transmedia, like being able to have people who came to us and had interest from other places and say, hey, we need kids content here. How can we work together? Really was fundamental for our thinking and us realizing that this is not about us as Ubongo kind of building an empire and dominating and trying to be the Disney of Africa. It's about finding the right people and partners in each place who are going to understand the local context, figure out how it needs to work there, and also kind of advise us from the content through to the distribution of like, what's going to work here? And what do we mm -hmm. need to know? So that's, I think you were really one of our first partners who we did that with. And we learned so much from, you know, bringing our shows to Ghana. And of course, one of the things that we ha did learn as we were expanding was like one of the most critical changes we needed to make was adapting to more local languages. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. kind of over time, if we tested and experimented and partnered with different people, we've now kind of come up with a three-phase approach to our growth, where the first phase is just focusing on getting a foothold and getting some broadcast. So we take our content in the languages we already have, mostly either English or French or sometimes Kiswahili, if that's spoken locally, and just get it out somehow on a TV station to start building an audience and start learning from that audience. So that's zero adaptation, but just kind of putting it out there. Mm -hmm. And that we can learn through that about the needs of the local audience until we're ready to put it into the second phase, which is usually adaptation. So figuring out which local languages does this need to get in, to what degree does it need to be adapted? So sometimes it's a bilingual English and another language. Sometimes it's a full adaptation dependent on the school system and what parents are interested in and, and just like what languages kids are speaking and what languages broadcasters are willing to show. So with that adaptation, we're also looking kind of 360 degrees around the support. So we're adapting our TV and radio programs, but then also providing social media support. We have a WhatsApp bot now um, starting to launch SMS services. So there's a much greater degree of investment that goes into adapting so that we can engage the local audience and achieve better learning outcomes. Mm -hmm. And then kind of the third phase that we're just moving into now, it's, Tanzania is there and we're kind of moving Kenya and some other major markets into this phase is figuring out once you've got it locally adapted and really high engagement among say the 70 to 80% of the population you can reach on broadcast media, how do we reach those underserved? populations. So figuring out how to get to rural areas, how to ensure that content is accessible for children with disabilities. Um, we've been doing, you know, experiments with Kenyan Sign Language, Tanzanian Sign Language. Yeah, and kind of figuring that out. So with these three steps, there's a lot of learning that we can do along the way. And it also makes it a little bit more manageable rather than being like, if we're going into Nigeria, we had to beach every kid in Nigeria. Now we right. understand okay, this is what we're going to do first. And we know yeah. at least we have a pathway to getting to those hardest to reach out of school kids, but mm -hmm. it's just too big of a mountain to try and climb starting with them first. Mm -hmm. we have to mm -hmm. Get an audience, get the partners on board, build some engagement, then adapt to local languages. And then we find a way now that we have this stuff that works, how do we get it to everyone? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. Makes a lot of sense. And so, in that context, you know, we've just come off of or we're, we're still in and in and out of this pandemic life and lifestyle. So the idea of reaching those that are the hardest to reach, 
is real. It's very real because, you know, we have had children out of school for a year or so. So can you speak a little bit more about kind of your vision for being able to to reach and impact and measure impact for those hard to reach areas? Sure. Yeah. So we, this is something we've been trying to figure out for a long time and kind of We've been testing and piloting different approaches of, say, running rural screening clubs and things like that. And I think the main thing that we've learned, and luckily we learned this kind of before the pandemic, was that there is no one-size-fits-all solution. Mm -hmm. If we have to scale this to all children in Africa, what we have to do is empower communities to be able to use whatever resources and infrastructure they have to be able to support children's learning. Mm -hmm. So at a broad scale, we can do that with national broadcasters, but then at a very local scale, we have to figure out what's gonna work in each community. And we can't make just one, you know, a one size fits all solution. So for the past kind of two years, what we've been working on is this concept of a toolkit where a church, or a local NGO, or even a young guy who runs what we call video bandas, you know, these video halls who's showing football matches. Mm -hmm. How does he use his excess time to show content for kids in a rural area? Because it may be off grid, but you've got English Premier League soccer showing, I don't care how remote it is in Africa, there's someone with a TV and a generator or a solar panel who's showing that. So finding mm-hmm. ways of really seeing these people as our partners and intermediaries and creating kits and easy to use guides and access to content for them to be able to utilize the content that we create in ways that make the most sense for their communities and the kids and parents who they're serving. So yeah, the key is really finding partners. And we don't mean just a partnership with a ministry of education or a giant bilateral organization. We're talking, we need hundreds and thousands of super small scale partners. Mm -hmm. You know, this Sunday school teacher, it's been amazing Mm -hmm. how kind of churches and even mosques have kind of picked it up and said, Hey, we need more content for the children, especially while Mm -hmm. schools have been closed. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. now our job is figuring out how do we create things that can serve those people who have the direct access to kids and support them to be able to amplify the impact of whatever they are doing. So yeah, that's kind of our strategy and we're still trying to learn, um, make things as adaptable and flexible as possible. So now we have an online platform where anyone can come in, register, search through our content by language, age, media format, right? So if you only Mm -hmm. have a speaker, you just grab the audio content. If you have an office where you can print, but no electricity where you are. We have printable versions mm-hmm. of things printed mm-hmm. off and take it. So doing that and then USB sticks and SD cards, just trying to really make it so that no matter what technology someone has, they can find a way to use this content and also have some ideas and guidance upon how to best leverage it for, mm-hmm. um, make it, you know, work for the kids. Right. So it's really the idea that everyone is a teacher. Right. So everyone and anyone can be an educator to the children. And so I, I really love that concept and work similarly on the same kinds of things, um, working with caretakers and caregivers to be able to deliver content to early learners. So when you talk about doing the big broadcast, you know, when you look at the, the model for funding media, traditionally it's commercials. 
right? So we're in a kind of different space where you you have to figure out how to do it in a different way. So how have you been able to potentially just leverage what you're getting from the broadcast, be able to move into these? Because these high touch endeavors are expensive. There's no you know ways around it. It's just more costly to be able to deliver that. So how have you been able to fund that type of work? Yeah, this has been, it is a difficult space to navigate. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. the broadcast space. And it's funny, I have this reputation, I'm very famous for like, we just will not do an exclusive deal with anyone. And mm-hmm. uh, all the broadcasters want exclusivity. And we've just laid it out there like, we can't do it, we no. won't do it. Yeah. And, start yeah. and we've just had to hold firm there. Even with that, so if you don't give a broadcaster exclusivity, there's no way they're giving you money for the content, Mm -hmm. especially Mm -hmm. free-to-air national broadcasters, which are the ones who are reaching 95% of the population. And then maybe you've Mm -hmm. got another 5% with satellite, but that's not who we're trying to reach anyway. So we've had to just basically give up on the idea that we're going to make any money from the broadcasters and think about, okay, we're getting a lot of reach through them. How do we fund this based upon that reach. And so for us, we actually, we're a nonprofit. We started as a for-profit social enterprise, switched mm-hmm. to being nonprofit because mm-hmm. um, yeah, there is this question of either you, you make things exclusive and put it behind a paywall, which means you're keeping it away from the kids who need it most, or you have to find another right. way to subsidize it. And so we decided we're gonna subsidize. Our goal is to reach 60 million kids by 2025. We wanna be accessible to all kids in Africa eventually. And in order to do that, we have to find a way to fund it, but at a super low cost per child. So mm-hmm. we're most funded now, and the subsidized cost per child that we reach is seven cents per kid per year. So wow. we're able to get that cost down really low and then go to funders, which are mostly family foundations or kind mm-hmm. of the innovation funds out of USAID, DFID, um, the Canadian government, and raise funding that way. So that mm-hmm. accounts for about 85% of the funding we need to run the organization. And then the other 15% does come from earned revenue. The largest portion of that is YouTube, actually. So mm-hmm. we have a very large YouTube audience, a lot mm-hmm. of viewers in the US and UK, and we generate way more money just from you know getting that royalty from YouTube than we ever did trying to sell our TV shows to TV stations in Africa. Um, Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, YouTube has been great for us, but it's not super reliable for children's content because all they have to do is change the algorithm. Like one day- And no one can find you. Everything changes. So, So it is a little bit of a risky thing. We're not betting everything there, but we do put all of our content on YouTube. Um, And Mm -hmm. we found that to be a really great way to generate additional revenue. And then also we've done fundraising to our YouTube audience. So we have about a million unique users a month out of the US. Mm -hmm. If we're asking them, hey, you're watching this free, can you donate a dollar to support kids in Africa to get it too? That's actually been part of the strategy now for how to fundraise for that grant funding we're getting. And then the last bit is, as you mentioned, advertising. We used to do advertising, but it's been really difficult because we're in many countries now. We broadcast nationwide in 19 countries, and each company is going to have a different ad and marketing every country. Doing multi-country deals is very difficult, and also there's no regulation around advertising to children. Right, right. So the things that 
ask for are just often quite unethical. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we also realized was who's spending the most money to reach kids and parents in Africa? It's not necessarily just the advertisers, you know, your fast moving consumer goods and Coca-Cola's, but it's people who want to get word out about using bed nets, who want to do messaging around Mm -hmm. gender equality or traffic safety and things like that. So now what we do is we essentially sell kind of product placement and message placement for development Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. are in line with what we're trying to do as an organization. So being able to pull in, we've had big partners like the UN and WHO to do, you know, messaging around hand washing and things like that to smaller local partners who maybe want to teach about something quite specific. And we work with them to co-produce in our existing show. So instead of saying, hey, we'll do some separate PSA for you, it's like this show has an audience of, two million kids in your country who already have formed this connection and friendship with our characters. One of the best ways to get your message across now is to let our characters help you do it. Mm -hmm. And so that's another way that we've been able to fund a lot of our content. Right, right, right. So what about the, so do you ever see, you know, similar, because I mean, Africa is a totally different beast or different animal than, you know, the Western world. Do you see Africa catching up in terms of the actual consumers being a significant source of revenue in the next five years? It's really hard because, mm. I mean, even in the U.S., no one wants to pay for anything, right? right. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Netflix and other, you know, platforms which are subscription-based, but it's really difficult even so one of the things we've looked at and how most children's content is actually monetized even in the West is is through all your add-ons. So like Peppa Pig, I don't yeah. think they even make back their production funding from TV broadcasts, mm. but they mm-hmm. sell you know, Peppa Pig merch. They've got Peppa Pig apps, yeah. all of these different things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's something we have been trying to explore but it's yeah. really, really difficult. So, yeah. you know, our 60% of our users in Tanzania live on less than a dollar a day. So, or sorry, actually, no, live on less than $3 a day. About 30% are on less than a dollar a day at the household level. Mm-hmm. It's a very small amount of money that people can afford to spend. Mm-hmm. But when you look at producing merchandise and keeping inventory and all of this, it's quite... Um, yeah, it's a, a whole other operation. Mm-hmm. So... It is really difficult. With digital, in theory, it's a bit easier, but how do you actually collect money from people? So let's say mm-hmm. someone's willing to pay, you know, the equivalent of 10 US cents a month for an app. You got to integrate with all of the mobile money providers. In mm-hmm. Tanzania alone, we have to do four integrations. Now multiply that out by 19 yeah. countries. Yeah. We had a lot of issues when we've experimented with all of these things, but like you just have billing failure because people don't have the amount in their wallet, or in some places, they're inputting the amount they're paying themselves, right? It's not like with a credit mm. card, charging. Mm. they're like, okay, I need to pay this amount. So if someone pays you like three cents less, are you going to follow up with them to collect right. 
the other three sons, which is going to yeah. cost more just like in the phone call to China. Yeah, exactly. So there's just a lot of complications when it comes to the consumer sales. So our approach has been like, eventually we will get there. So we have yeah. all the consumer products. You want to buy a music album, a DVD, a t-shirt, any of that. We've got paid apps also. That's all available. But sure. it's kind of R&D for us. We're learning from yeah. it. And we're not kidding ourselves that this is going to yeah. fund the production of yeah. our three TV shows for the next how many right. years in the future. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's really keeping it simple. And I tell people often, I just say to them, you know, there's all this buzz about tech, 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 and education. And in Africa, we're still a little bit analog. So allow us, because I think that's a little bit of where particularly the African child, I mean, I love the idea and because it's all tech is intuitive to children eventually once they are introduced to it. But given the circumstances of their families, you know, a lot of the challenges you mentioned, power supply, Wi-Fi, all of those things, and even the literacy of those people who are taking care of the children, they all play a role. So the idea of keeping it as simple as possible initially, but I love the idea that you said that's all R&D because that's exactly how I approach it as well, is kind of the way forward for us for the near term. Yeah. And I've really seen just to pick up on that quickly, I think sometimes there's a real unfair expectation that's put on mm -hmm. by whether it's impact investors or funders who are looking at ed tech and educational media in Africa of, oh, this needs to be self-sustaining. But when you actually look and look at, you know, the educational media programs that are on in the US or Europe, the majority of them are government funded and government exactly right mm -hmm. so you have cbbs you've got cbs you know sesame street is a non-profit sesame workshop and that money's coming in from government um mm -hmm. so if even in wealthier countries you aren't able to fund that off of user revenue and b2c revenue it's yeah it's difficult to expect that it would be fully done that way in africa also. Mm -hmm. um, and when you do set that as a precedent, you're just kind of worsening the digital divide in that, okay, mm -hmm. so should we say that only children whose parents can afford to pay for this should get access to educational content? So mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, we, we have to make it a, figure out ways to make it sustainable, but to expect that that's all through user monetization is, I think, a little bit of an unfair expectation when that's not what's happening anywhere in the world, frankly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you for saying that. Exactly. That's <laughs> exactly what it is. So with that in mind, I want to ask you about a mindset hack. So this is something that kind of gets your mind similarly to thinking of the way we're thinking. How do you give yourself a mindset hack? There's a great kind of saying that I learned from a guy named Tom Chi, who I did this prototype thinking session with. Uh, he's a great thinker and prototyper. And I think what he says is doing is the best kind of thinking. Thinking is a horrible mm. way to think. And mm. I think so when I get stuck on just thinking around things or when we're in a group, you know, you get stuck in these things of like trying to argue what's going to work best. And it's like the honest truth is none of us know how you figure mm. things out is by doing them and testing them. So I try and like you know, I can sometimes get stuck in this loop of overthinking things and trying to figure out exactly what's going to work when mm -hmm. actually the best thing to do is just try doing something and maybe it won't work, but now I know that it won't work and then go on to the next thing. So I really like that mindset hack of instead of trying to think out the right solution, 
switch to thinking by doing and and then what you're really doing is learning. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I like that. That's great. That's a good one. Nice. Nice. So I want to ask you, aside from work, because we talked a lot about work and the things that are, you know, we always talk about work and the business of it all. Tell us a little bit about yourself outside of work. Are you a reader? Are you a watcher? Or are you a listener? I am all three for sure. Um, Okay. As you know, as someone who who creates a lot of media, I also try and consume where I can find time. So yeah. I would say reading is maybe where I I'm able to find the least time because I'm always trying to do ten things at once. Yeah. So now right. I used to read a lot. Now it's a lot of audiobooks. and then of course listening with podcasts and radio mm-hmm. and trying to really get a broad kind of swath of voices who who I'm yeah. hearing then with watching too, you know, uh, at the end of the day, our, our core programs and what I produce is a lot of TV content. So yeah. always trying to watch and learn. And unfortunately, sometimes not enjoying the watching as much as I should, because I'm kind of trying to mm, like, to like um, analyze, reverse yeah. engineer it and analyze sure. it. And see, oh, look what they're doing there. But yeah, I mean, I, I do all three. And so thankful that like nowadays, just on the internet, you can just Get access yeah, to there's a whole world. Right, all right. So what's mm-hmm. one of your favorite podcasts? So a podcast I've been listening to a lot recently is called How to Save a Planet. So it's a oh, climate change okay. podcast. Mm-hmm. It's quite interesting. Uh, they delve into top, different topics each week. So, mm-hmm. so that's on one side, I think just for personal interest for me, I've always, as I mm-hmm. said, I have a degree in ecology and environmental bio, uh, mm-hmm. evolutionary mm-hmm. biology, and this is something that's really important to me. So I've learned a lot from that. And then also I've been trying to listen to more and more radio drama, I think, mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. and podcast dramas. So, you know, radio drama used to be such a big thing and yeah. it kind of went away. Yeah. Um, and it's having a bit of a renaissance with these amazing podcasts, like Homecoming. The TV yeah. show started as an audio podcast. And one of the big questions that I have is we've always created our shows TV first and then adapted yeah. for radio. And yeah. I've been trying to learn, hey, could we do something that's more like create something audio first? Because mm-hmm. radio is still what reaches the most people in Africa. And mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. find a way to add the visuals and adapt that to TV. So I've had a lot of fun listening to these radio dramas. The Cypher from BBC is another one. And then there's mm-hmm. a huge mm-hmm. number of great new kids ones. There's a, a new platform called Kina, which is audio for kids, P-I-N-N-A. And I've just been kind of exploring and testing out all of these awesome um, hmm. radio dramas that and audio dramas they have for kids. And it's just, what's so exciting is it's, there's so many creators out there because you can do it much more easily than having to like, exactly. you know, create a whole animated TV show with just a couple of people and a computer, right. you really can create an audio drama. So, yeah. so that's yeah. been exciting. And I've learned a lot from those. Cool. Those are cool tips. We actually started with radio and this is before podcasts were like, oh, podcasts. And it was a challenge because radio stations didn't want it because they were saying, oh, well, when can kids access radio, you know, they need their parents and the prime time is when the drive is. So that was always a big challenge. So yeah, I've, now that audio is on demand more readily and around, and, and I mean, uh, podcasts in, in Africa are not, you know, the norm necessarily yet, but it's getting there. So I'm with you in terms of like creating more audio drama for children and also listening. Similarly, I listen to a lot of podcast drama, audio drama, 
podcast in general. So nice. Well, Nisha, I've been so, um, it's so great getting to know more about you and having this kind of peer-to-peer conversation about the space that we're in. So before we sign off, do you have any last words for our listeners? Sure. Yeah. I mean, first, I just want to thank you for having me. It's been, I, you know, listening to your podcast, I've learned so much from other people who've been on. So I hope that, you know, this has been useful and insightful and and maybe people can learn from my experience too. Maybe the last words coming back to the mindset hack is the thing that I keep learning too, is that kind of no one actually knows what they're doing and we're all figuring it out as we go along. So mm-hmm. hopefully I think giving some insight into what we're doing shows just how much we've just been figuring it out as we go. And I'd really encourage anyone who's out there listening who has an idea but doesn't know exactly how to do it or, or how to get it out there, this kind of just start doing and you'll learn as you go. And I don't think there is any one right way to do things. And what's worked for us is just figuring out the way that works as we go. And that might not be quote unquote, the proper way to create an animated series or create a podcast or anything like that, but it's a way that works and it's connecting with the audience. And that's all that matters. Right. And make an impact. Most definitely. Thank you, Nisha. All right. Thanks, friends. Yeah. So listeners, this has been another episode of Glocal Citizens. As always, you can reach us at www.glocalcitizenspod.com and wherever you get your podcasts, new episodes every Tuesday. So catch us on your podcast or listener platforms, wherever they are. Please do share, subscribe, and also leave a comment or suggest a guest. I love talking to new people all the time, and I love feedback from my audience. So until next time, bye for now.